Well, why don't we open up our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark as we continue our study there. And uh, I'm also going to ask you to put a bookmark in Hebrews chapter 3, or put something there, uh, because we're going to be there uh, towards the end of the service. We're going to quick hop, or the sermon, we're going to quick hop over to Hebrews 3. Um, so Mark 6 and Hebrews 3. And uh, as I looked at the, the text, um, the, this chapter 6 this week, it struck me that in God's providence, we are in this portion of Mark's gospel right on the heels of Missions Month. Uh, the month of March, for us as a church family, we're going to be focusing uh, on missions, our, our global responsibility to take the gospel to the nations. And it just struck me that we need to slow down in chapter 6 for the next three weeks because I think Jesus has a lot for us in these verses about what he wants us to be on mission. If you just take a look at verses 1 through 6, for instance, this morning, we're going to be asked of the Lord, are you willing to take the gospel next door? Jesus takes the gospel to his hometown. Uh, take a look at verses 7 through 13. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at how Jesus is going to send the disciples out to go spread the gospel other places. And we're asked the question, are you willing to take the gospel anywhere that Jesus sends you? And then, Lord willing, three weeks from now, we'll look at verses 14 through 29 at the death of John the Baptist, and we'll ask the question, are you willing to pay the ultimate price for the gospel? So this morning, we're going to take a look at verses 1 through 6, and really the question that's going to be asked is, are you willing to take the gospel next door? And if you are, what kind of Christian, what kind of church do we need to be if we're going to be successful in doing that? So let me read this text for us, and then we'll dive in. Uh, Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. He, Jesus, went away from there, and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Father, as we look at these verses, we pray for soft hearts and clear minds. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, she clicked her heels together, and what did she say? There's no place like home, there's no place like home, there's no place like home. Perry Como, at Christmas time, he sings, there's no place like home for the holidays. John Denver sang, hey! It's good to be back home again. And even Frank Sinatra once sang, it's very nice to go traveling to Paris, London, and Rome, but it's oh so nice to come back home. We love to go back home. Home is a place 
that is so great to go back to. I love when I get to go back down into the southern end and uh, be uh, in, in among my childhood home where so many memories are kept, and so many dear friends and family down in the southern end. We love to go back home. But it's not always the case that everyone enjoys going back home. How sad it is when you hear in an adult Bible fellowship class or a life group or whatever, someone saying, I'm going to be journeying back home to be with my family. Could you please pray? Things aren't always easy when I'm with my family. It's sad when going home is not a matter of pleasure, but rather a matter for prayer. And in verse 1 of our text this morning, Jesus is going back home. Take a look at verse 1. He went away from there, came to his hometown. He's going back to his hometown of Nazareth where he was raised. And it really is surprising that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords was not raised in some great city like Rome, but rather came from some podunk town like Nazareth. I mean, if Jesus... To put it in Lancaster terms, he wasn't born in Lancaster City. He was born down more where I came from, down in Solanco, uh, which we might call Slow Lanco, or, or uh, Easy, I know, Ryan, I know, or, uh, or as I was affectionately termed as a Penn Manor kid, Penn Manor, okay? This is where Jesus was raised. Even Nathaniel in the Gospel of John said when he realized that Jesus came from Nazareth, he said, can anything good come from Nazareth? But this is just a foreshadow that Jesus, though he was the Lord of lords and kings of king of kings, he would be born into the world as a humble servant. So Jesus is going back to Nazareth, and when we read in verse 1 that he's going back home, we're not necessarily to have warm, fuzzy feelings in our hearts for Jesus. Oh, he's going back home. We're actually supposed to feel a little bit of dread for Jesus. Certainly growing up, he would have had very happy memories. Growing up under parents like Joseph and Mary who were people of faith. But what has happened to him in his hometown since his ministry began? We have to remind ourselves, we're not told in, in Mark's gospel, but we're told in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 4, that when he began his ministry... He went into the synagogue in which he was, grew up and was raised, and on that occasion, he, he took the, gospel, the, uh, the, the scroll of Isaiah, and he unfolded it, and he read a prophecy that was concerning himself. And after he read it, what did he say? This prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing today. He was saying, I am the fulfillment of the prophecy. How did that go for him that day? They tried to kill him. By throwing him off a cliff because they thought that he was blaspheming. And then in Mark's gospel, back in chapter 3, do you remember when Jesus' family went to try to go get him and stop his ministry because they thought that he had gone nuts? So it doesn't get much worse going back home than going back to a family who thinks you're clinically insane and to church friends who tried to murder you the last time that you saw them. That's not a very good home to be going back to. And yet, Jesus goes back, despite the danger, despite the persecution that he knew was awaiting him there. I think the first thing that we see from this text, Jesus, our example, in his willingness and his wisdom in evangelizing his hometown, his willingness and his wisdom to evangelize his hometown. 
behind verse 1, when he's going to his hometown, we see Jesus' missional spirit, that he wanted to take the gospel to those who were arguably the hardest and most difficult for him to reach. He had a love and a concern for the ones that he was closest to and most familiar with, that they would hear the gospel and that they would believe. Now, isn't it true for us as believers that it's often easier for us to evangelize to complete strangers or to acquaintances and how hard it is, so difficult it is for us to evangelize to our closest friends and our family members because what if they get offended at what we have to say? What if, what if it puts a strain on the relationship What if it messes up every single family reunion and family gathering from here on out? I'm with you in this. I have unbelieving uh, family members uh, on both sides of my extended family. And when I'm going to be in their presence, me and my wife, we often pray for opportunities to be able to, to share the gospel with them, that we would see open doors to engage in spiritual conversation. But I have to tell you, I often sin. By letting my fear of man rule out over the opportunities that God gives me to be able to speak to them the gospel. And Jesus is our great example here in verse 1 and 2 in that he does not ignore the opportunities. But he willingly goes to his uh, hometown to spread the news. When I read this, I thought of Paul in Romans 9, chapter verses 1 and 2, when he talks about his passion to reach his fellow Jews. He said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen. Paul's saying, I would willingly go to hell if it meant that I could reach my fellow Jews and they would come to faith. In Jesus. Do we have that desire? Do we have that same burden, that same willingness that Paul and Jesus had to evangelize our hometown? Do we ever pray, Lord, give us Lancaster or we will not be satisfied? If that is our desire, I think the second thing that we can glean from Jesus' example in verses 1 and 2 is his wisdom and how he goes about sharing the gospel with his hometown, his wisdom and how he goes about doing it. It seems like such a throwaway statement. Take a look at verse 2. This could just go right over our heads without us really thinking about the significance of this. But in verse 2, it says, On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Now, has Jesus up to this point in the gospel been very particular about the places and times where he teaches? Uh, No. He's taught in in the synagogue. He's taught in the streets. He's taught in fields. He's taught on the beach. He's taught in houses. He's taught everywhere and pretty much without any really regard of the people around him or the time. But when he comes to his hometown, knowing that he's already kind of walking on thin ice, he does wait for the Sabbath day, the traditional time, and waits to teach in the synagogue. I love what Kent Hughes has, a great insight in his commentary on this verse. He says, Jesus was careful about his approach to the hometown crowd. He took his disciples, 
his devoted entourage with him. This unmistakably would have identified him as a rabbi. And in addition, he waited until the Sabbath to publicly minister. He did the traditional, conventional thing so as to give as little offense as possible. I think most of us believers here, our temptation is probably on the other side of the spectrum, that we don't finally pull the trigger when it comes to uh, engaging in an evangelistic conversation. But there are some Christians, aren't there, who maybe are just a little over-aggressive in their tact. For lack of a better word, some Christians lack some common sense in reaching their unbelieving neighbors with the gospel. They lack common sense and winsomeness and how to evangelize in a way that actually invites people to listen, actually persuades them with winning arguments, seeking to win them over. Like Jesus, we need to think through and pray for a strategy to reach our friends and our family. Are we thinking through how best to to, to uh, evangelize to each person that is in our closest circle so that they might be willing to at least listen. The gospel is already offensive in and of itself. Uh, let's not add any offense needlessly by being rude or by being over-aggressive. So I think we see wisdom here, but as willingly and wisely as Jesus did evangelize in his hometown, how did they respond? Well, take a look at verse 2 again. Verse 2, many who heard him were astonished. Now, this is not astonished like, woo, that was amazing. This is astonished like, I cannot believe that he is saying these things. This is a negative kind of astonishment. And notice what they do. They, they go after him in every single way possible. Verse 2, they're suspicious of his material. Verse 2, they say, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? They go on to even insinuate demonic influence at work in him. Verse 2 again, how are such mighty works done by his hands? Uh, they knock him down to size, don't they? Verse 3, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? And brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? This is the kid that we watched grow up. Who does he think he is? He's just a carpenter posing as a rabbi. He has no authority to say these things. But worst of all, they attack his very integrity and his very birth. Uh, take a look at verse 3 again. Notice they don't say, is not this the carpenter's son? They say, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? Insinuating, isn't this the kid who was just born out of wedlock because his mother was sleeping around? Isn't this the illegitimate bastard son, Jesus? We know where he came from. Who could ever claim to be a great teacher with his origins? Now, friends... If someone like me uh, speaks things that are crazy and ridiculous, I mean, I, I understand. I've been with you guys for like 20-some years. You've, some of you have known me since I was 10 years old. I'm not surprised at all, and it's very legitimate for you to think that some of the things I say are crazy and that maybe we shouldn't put all our trust and faith in Adam Swift because my track record speaks for itself. But Jesus, 
for these people who watched him grow up as a perfect child, even more amazingly, as a perfect teenager, for them to see that never once did he sin, for them to ultimately dismiss him, wow, what must be at work in the hearts of these folks? Verse 3 again, they took offense at him. They took offense at him. Point two that we can learn from this text, Jesus is a stumbling rock of offense to unbelief. Jesus is a stumbling rock of offense to unbelief. What seems at surface level in this passage to just be familiarity breeds contempt is actually a much deeper spiritual issue. Their hearts were hardened in unbelief. Take a look at verse 6. We're going to skip ahead a little bit. Verse 6, Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. They had hard, sinful hearts that were not softened to God and his truth and to the reality of God's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is always the root of every single person's offense at Jesus. The ultimate bedrock reason that people are opposed to Jesus Christ is because they have hardened hearts of unbelief. Uh, Peter tells us in uh, 1 Peter 2, Speaking of Jesus, he quotes the Old Testament. He says, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, Jesus, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. For believers, what is Jesus? He is chosen and precious. But he goes on. But for those who do not believe, he is a stone. The, the stone has become a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. We read in our scripture reading from 1 Corinthians that we preach Christ, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Friends, as we seek to reach our hometown, as we seek to reach Lancaster, we have to remember this is a message that the natural man will never receive. And so as we are reaching, we need to pray for the divine work of the Holy Spirit and opening up hearts, giving new birth so that they may actually have hearts that are softened to the truth of God, for their eyes to actually see what their sinful blindness cannot see, the, the truth and their, uh, their absolute need for the gospel. That is what we have to pray for as a church as we seek to reach Lancaster. But as I thought about it this week, I think it would be very easy for us just to leave the message and only point the finger at the people outside of the faith of that, that we hold to, our, our precious faith in Christ. But we have to remember the context of this, mess, of, this, uh, of this story. Who is Jesus teaching to and where is he teaching? He's teaching to people who claim to be the people of God and he's teaching inside the synagogue, if you will, inside the church doors. And these are the people who have hardened hearts of unbelief. Friends, we ourselves as a church, we are not beyond being offended by Jesus and his teaching. We ourselves may have hearts of unbelief. Paul warned Timothy 
in 2 Timothy 4.3, speaking about the church, he said, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Grace Church, I ask you this morning, is there anything that Jesus is not allowed to say to us in this church? Is there anything in his word that you recoil from when it is taught? Are we coming expectantly to the word? Whether it is taught behind this pulpit by any one of our pastors, whether it's being taught in an adult Bible fellowship or in a Bible study on a Wednesday night, what is our heart's attitude towards the Bible when it is taught? We are not just gathering together whenever we open the scriptures just for information or to hear the words of a mere man. Whenever the Bible is taught accurately and faithfully, Jesus is speaking to us. He is coming. There is a divine encounter that is taking place every time that we open the scriptures and they are unfolded accurately for us. God is speaking. Do we recoil from anything that he may have to say to us in his word? And if so, if there is anything in his word where when it's being taught, you, you, you sort of have a cringe moment. That's probably the Holy Spirit poking you in the idols, <laughs> waking you up and telling you something's wrong with your heart. Soften your heart towards me. I told you we'd look at Hebrews 3. Let's turn there really quick. The warning that we have from Hebrews 3 stands very clear. This is a warning for us who claim to be followers of Christ. Hebrews 3, starting in verse 12. Hebrews 3, verse 12. The writer says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Friends, this danger of unbelief that could plague any church, could plague us, should lead us, I think, to pray some things for our church. If it's true that unbelief is a danger that could even come upon our church, what are some things that we should pray in order to be protected, that our hearts might be softened to him? Just three things that I would recommend all of us pray for each other as a church family. Number one, we need to be praying, Lord, keep the cross central in our lives. Keep the cross central in our lives. Friends, if we contemplate the reality that Jesus took on our sins, he took on every single one of your sins, just one of your sins would have been enough to send you to hell for eternity. But he willingly took on all your sins, became sin for you, so that 
you might receive his righteousness. He was willing to bleed. He was willing to suffer. He was willing to take on and absorb the full wrath of God upon himself so that you might be saved. If we believe that good news, how could we ever harden our hearts to anything that he would say to us or require of us if he was willing to pay that cost? Why would we ever? Harden our hearts to him. Number two, we should be praying, Lord, make our hearts delight in your truth. Make our hearts delight in your truth. Uh, We need to be people who not only affirm God's word, but whose hearts are absolutely thrilled by the truth of God. Like the psalmist when he said, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation day and night. I have stored up your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. Your word is, is more precious to me than much fine gold or, or sweeter than droppings from the honeycomb. That that would be our heart's desire. That it would be such a thrill for us to walk in accordance with God's truth. And thirdly, we need to pray. Lord, make us see the subtle ways our hearts are hardened to you. Again, Hebrews 3, verse 13 says that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness, deceitfulness of sin. How often uh, sin works in such a way that we don't even recognize it's at work in our hearts. We can't even see ourselves as clearly as we might hope. Some of our sins are very obvious, But oftentimes, sin is so deceptive that we don't even recognize that we are subtly walking in offense to Jesus and walking in open unbelief towards his truth. These things matter for us as a church because, thirdly, from Mark 6, Jesus will not bestow his power on hard hearts. I have, uh, verses 5 and 6 of Mark 6 have freaked me out all week long. Uh, What does Jesus do? What what does it say of of Jesus in verse 5? Take a look at verse 5. He could do no mighty work there. Uh, It wasn't that he was incapable. Obviously, we know Jesus' power cannot be stopped by anything. His power is not contingent upon us at all. It's not a matter of capability. That is a moral statement that Mark is saying. Morally, by his righteous standards, Jesus could not, he would not do a mighty work among the people of Nazareth because it would be unfitting for hard hearts to receive his mighty work among them. And then verse 6, he marveled because of their unbelief. Only two places in the gospel are we told that Jesus marvels. The first place is not in Mark, but it's a Roman centurion who came to him in faith, and he marveled at his faith. He marveled at a man who should not have had faith as a Gentile, but had it, And the second place that he marvels is here, at unbelief. He marvels at a people who should have had faith in him and yet did not have it. 
unbelief is such a surprise, such a grievous sin that it surprises Jesus and it repulses his power. Can he do a mighty work among us, Grace Church? Would he marvel at our belief or at our unbelief? If we are going to willingly and wisely evangelize Lancaster and the ends of the earth as we come upon Missions Month, I know this is our desire. I know that we want to do this. I know that we, we want our neighbors to come to know Jesus, and we want the ends of the earth to come to know Jesus. But friends, he will not do a mighty work among us if we will not allow him to do a mighty work in us. He will not work through us what he cannot work in us. Is there anything in our hearts this morning where we, if we're honest, we say to Jesus, I have some, I have some reservations that I've been holding with you for, for a long time. There, there, you can say a lot of things to me, Jesus, but there are some things in my life that you're not allowed to say to me. There are some things that you are not allowed to require of me. And if that is the case, are we ready to lay those things down at the feet of Jesus? Ask for the Holy Spirit to soften our hearts this morning and say, Lord, we want to be a church where Jesus can do a mighty work through us. A church that he marvels at not because of our unbelief, but because of our belief, our openness to him. This morning, I want us to end by getting real with the Lord. I want us to have a personal time of confession where we come to him this morning in the quietness of our own hearts and say, Lord, here is the way that I have been offended by your truth. Here is the way that I have been walking in unbelief and hardness of heart towards you. And I am confessing those things to you this morning. I'm asking that you would soften my heart so that I would help to make this church family a church family where God's power comes down and works through us. And then after I give that moment of silence, I'm going to have us stand together and we're going to do a corporate confession of sin, giving ourselves freshly as a church family by using uh, the words of Daniel 9 where he uh, prayed on behalf of his people Israel uh, that they might be cleansed of their sin and might walk in newness. Here is the good news of the gospel, folks. When we come to Jesus in honesty and humility and tell him, Lord, here's my sin. Here it is in plain, plain daylight. What does John say? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He will come to you with forgiveness and he will come to you ready to enable you to walk in obedience. But one thing that he cannot do, he cannot work with a hard heart. He cannot work his full truth into a heart that is not willing to be opened to his full truth. Is there anything that Jesus cannot say to you this morning? Is there anything that he cannot require of you? Bring it to him this morning.
So, Lord, we come to you, and in a moment of quiet, we just want to be honest with you. We want to cleanse our hearts in these moments. We just want to be honest and uh, forthright and say to you, Lord, um, we want to be a church where you can do a great work. And in order for that to be the case, here are the things that are keeping us from full obedience, full faithfulness to you. We're going to confess those things to you now in the privacy of our hearts. Lay them before you. Why don't we stand together as we make the words of Daniel 9 our prayer. We'll pray this as a church family. This comes from Daniel 9. This is God's word that we're praying. Let's pray this together. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your prophets who spoke in your name. If we could advance. Could we advance? Thank you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. Would you pray with me before we respond in song? Father, uh, we are thankful that when we come to you with our sin, because of the good news of the gospel, because our sins are paid for, we have forgiveness in you. We have grace and mercy. And Lord, we pray that our repentance would be proven genuine this week, that we would begin in the areas where we have been walking in disobedience to walk in obedience to your truth. Lord, increase our faith as a church family. Make us a pure church. Use us however you want, Lord. We want to be a church where a mighty power is at work, not because of anything that we do, but because we are opened to whatever you want to do in and through us. We believe you can do all things. So as we approach Missions Month, God, we pray that we would, be ha that we would have passionate hearts to reach the ends of the earth starting next door. Give us a willingness, give us a wisdom to know how to reach Lancaster and beyond, God, that we would be open to whatever you want for us in making your glory known among the nations. Lord, we are your church and we belong to you and we want to do whatever you require of us. So we give ourselves to you afresh in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. As we respond, we respond that we stand on the word of God and every promise that he has given to us.